Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Today I would like to share with you a guest episode I have recently done for David Crowther's History of England podcast. It's about the Hundred Years' War, or rather the last few years of that war. I can thoroughly recommend David's podcast for anyone who's interested in knowing more about England than I can go into in my podcast. Search for History of England on iTunes or go to www.historyofengland.typepad.com And so the following podcast is about the final years of the Hundred Years' War. In brief, the years after Agincourt, and in more detail, the last four years, especially the battles of Formigny and Castillon. Next week, I will return to the history of medieval Spain and the Battle of Las Navas de Tolosa in 1212. But until then, I hope you enjoy this special episode. From 1449 to 1453, the French completed the conquest of Normandy and Aquitaine from the English in campaigns which culminated in the battles of Formigny in 1450 and of Castillon in 1453, the two battles I will focus on today. The popular view of the Hundred Years' War, at least in England, is a succession of glorious English battlefield victories, Cressy, Poitiers and Agincourt, plus perhaps some hazy recollections of the figure of Joan of Arc saving Orleans before being burnt at the stake as a heretic. Yet in the end it was the French who were victorious, driving the English out of all of France except the city of Calais. The fall of English France is less well known, at least in England, and is the subject of today's podcast. In 1420, King Henry V of England was proclaimed regent and heir apparent to the French throne. It was a remarkable achievement, made possible largely thanks to his victory at Agincourt but also because of French weakness at the time, with a king who drifted in and out of insanity and a civil war among the French nobility. Henry's true intentions at the start of the campaign are unclear. Most likely he would have been content with just taking Normandy, but his confidence and ambitions grew with each new victory. Had he lived longer, he may have been able to achieve his aim of the conquest of France. Not only was an exceptional military leader, but he commanded the respect of many a French noble, who might have been prepared to consider him as the only way out of a long-running civil war. 
but Henry's death made the task of total conquest by the English all but impossible, and so condemned the French and English to a further three decades of warfare. The only question was how much of France the English would end up with. As new territory was taken, Henry and then the Duke of Bedford sought not to impose English-style institutions, but rather take over the existing administration. The Normans already had a strong sense of independence from the French, and such feelings were encouraged by the English. Juliet Barker, in her book, Conquest the English Kingdom of France in a Hundred Years' War, writes that, Quote, these arrangements were part of a deliberate policy to reconcile the native population to a conquest which Henry intended to be permanent. It was never his intention to expel the indigenous people and replace them with English settlers. England did not have the population to support emigration on such a scale. End quote. The population of Normandy were given the same rights to the lands and offices that they had held before the invasion, if they submitted to the English. Those, however, who refused to submit were dispossessed. The intention was to create a new class of local leaders with an interest in maintaining the conquest in their particular area. The role of the Dukes of Burgundy were critical to the balance of power between the English and the French. Today the region of Burgundy is part of France, famous for its excellent wines. But if events in history had turned out differently, then it is quite possible that Burgundy would now be a separate nation. Since 1363, the Duchy of Burgundy was completely independent from France. The Dukes enjoyed considerable wealth and power, rivalling any other ruler of Europe. Some of the finest musicians, artists and architects of the time were brought to the Burgundian capital, Dijon, where their artistic legacy still graces the city. While Duke John the Fearless, who reigned from 1404 to 1419, was highly active in the politics of Paris, his son and successor, Philip the Good, 1419 to 1476, concentrated on building up the power and prestige of his own lands. On occasion he half-heartedly cooperated with the English on an offensive, but after 1420 took to the field only to defend his own frontiers. He was only interested in cooperating with the English if there was a direct and immediate benefit for himself and his duchy. Another main character in this story was Charles the Seventh of France, whose image in history is ambivalent. On the one hand, he is known in France as the victorious, or the well-served, whose reign witnessed the defeat of the English and their removal from the continent. On the other hand, his image is anything but heroic, and often overshadowed by that of Joan of Arc. Before his later successes, Charles was mockingly referred to as the King of Bourges, the name of the fortified town that he fled to, and where he held his court. In his biography of Charles, the historian, M.G.A. Vale, quotes the following excerpt from a play on Joan by George Bernard Shaw. Quote, The Dauphin is at Chinon, like a rat in a corner, except that he won't fight. We don't even know that he is the Dauphin. His mother says he isn't, and she ought to know. End quote. Vale writes how this represents the conventional view of Charles VII, at least to the English. In it he appears as, quote, a petulant, ineffective creature, 
tortured with doubts about his own legitimacy and consequently his right to the crown. Vale does admit this is a characterization which has some basis in the historical sources for the reign, but overall believes the portrayal is unfair. Charles's appearance was rather unprepossessing. He had small, rodent-like eyes, a long, bulbous nose, and unhealthy colouring of the skin. Physically, he was short, skinny, had poor legs and shoulders, which were too broad. And as for his character, he is sometimes seen as distrustful, capricious, devious, and superstitious. He is known to have had a, a keen interest in astrology, which for some was suspiciously similar to sorcery but was not an uncommon pastime among the leading figures of the time. The most severe accusation levelled against Charles was his inaction against the English and neglect of what appeared to be some of his duties of kingship. Like a French medieval Nero, he is portrayed as fiddling while the nation around him burns. His perhaps overcautious attitude can be attributed to the precarious situation he found himself in as a teenager, with the burden of the task of recovering French sovereignty resting on his young shoulders. A specific incident in October 1422 may have contributed to his timidity. The floor of a room in which he was holding court at La Rochelle collapsed beneath him, killing some of his entourage. From then on he suffered from a phobia of heights and public places. If Charles was too cautious, it was because his confidence had been rocked by the English invasion of his country, his abandonment by his parents, and the realisation that the most important thing for the survival of his dynasty was his own personal survival. A brave offensive against the English would give him an image more fit for a king, but one moment of bad luck and his death would give his most bitter enemies, the English, their best chance of success in their plans to dominate France. There had been conflict with the English for centuries, but was always beforehand a feudal, dynastic struggle. Now France was embroiled not only in a national war against England, but in a civil war that had torn the country in two. The stakes had never been higher, and he lived in a time in history when personal rule really mattered. Vale writes that although Charles was timid and cautious, he was highly astute. Surrounded by courtiers with their own personal interests, who would only be trusted as long as they could be rewarded, Charles was able to successfully deploy faction as a means to serve his own ends. He played off the different nobles, never allowing one to become too powerful. Also, Charles was determined not to give in. Both his elder brothers, who were Dauphins before him, were linked by marriage to the English and Burgundians, and may have been more willing to come to a compromise agreement to divide up France, but not Charles. One of the leading nobles of the court of Charles VII was the constable Arthur de Richemont. A younger son of the Duke of Brittany, de Richemont had an eventful military career, and typical of many a noble of the time would be prepared to switch sides as it suited him, to gain the best personal advantage. Captured at the Battle of Agincourt, he was released in 1420, after taking an oath of loyalty to Henry V and agreeing to fight on the side of the English. However, later he switched sides back to the French, and fought at the important French victory at the Battle of Pate on the 18th of June, 1429. 
1435, he helped arrange the Treaty of Arras between Charles VII of France and Philip, Duke of Burgundy. Juliet Barker portrays the conference at Arras of 1435 as essentially a stitch-up for the English. They were the last to receive their formal invitations, and since Charles VII and the Pope had already accepted and appointed delegates, it would have been very difficult to decline. Once they arrived, the terms offered were impossible, most of all the renunciation of the French crown in return for keeping the Duchy of Normandy and a marriage with a French princess. The English were effectively being required to give up everything they had fought for since 1415 in exchange for a dukedom which they would hold subject to Charles VII. The conference had been carefully stage-managed by the French and Burgundians to make the English look unreasonable and give Duke Philip the excuse he wanted to break with them. So, on the 21st of September, 1435, the Treaty of Arras was signed between Burgundy and France, leaving the English out in the cold. The Treaty of Troyes of 1420, by which Henry V had inherited the French crown, was effectively overturned, marking a significant turning point in the Hundred Years' War and the beginning of the end of the English Kingdom of France. For the English, the conference had been a disaster. As for Philip of Burgundy, at first sight it looked like a triumph. He had skilfully extricated himself from the English alliance with honour. Time would tell, however, that Philip had been duped by the French. Seduced by the cession of some minor border territories, by considerable personal bribes, and by the skilful tactics of the French negotiators, the Duke and his entourage had been persuaded to abandon their former ally in exchange for terms of peace which Charles VII never intended to honour. Philip believed he had merged from the conference as a grand figure on the world stage, but as Juliet Barker writes, what he did not know was that he, quote, was merely a puppet whose strings had been pulled by the Armanacs, end quote. Officially, France and Burgundy were at peace, but Charles VII, unable to accept the very existence of an independent Burgundy, waged a covert war on the duchy, funding its opponents and internal rebels. A large part of the reason why the English retained control over large parts of northern France for as long as they did, apart from the cautious approach of Charles, was that Charles's resources were divided. The recovery of Burgundy back under the French crown was just as important as that of Normandy from the English. In the years immediately after the Treaty of Arras of 1435, the French made significant gains against the English in Normandy, capturing a string of towns along the coast. Anne Curry writes in her book, The Hundred Years' War, that it would be wrong to simply write off the English at this point, as though the final expulsions of 1449 to 1453 follow in direct lines from the defeats of 1429. After so many years of conflict, the English, however, were running increasingly short of funds, and without any significant gains or victories, were finding the tax burden increasingly difficult to justify. Throughout the early 1430s and 1440s, the English had to put down numerous conspiracies against their rule in France. It was vital for them to be able to provide a sense of security and prosperity to territory they controlled, a task made harder by a series of exceptionally harsh winters. In 
When the supporters of Charles VII were unable to conquer territory from the English, they carried out raids, which disrupted trade and destroyed the countryside, causing great hardships among the local population. The French and English tried repeatedly to find a long-lasting peace settlement, but talks floundered, mainly on England's refusal to renounce Henry's claim to the throne. Fighting continued without any resolution, either way until 1444, when a shift in the English position can be detected. Not only were they prepared for truce, but were now also thinking of surrendering their claim to the throne for little more than Normandy and Gascony in full sovereignty. As King Henry VI of England came of age, it became apparent he did not share his father's appetite for warfare. In fact, the complete opposite. In comparison with King Richard II, who in the 1390s had also sought peace with France, Henry VI was unprepared to take a tough negotiating line. And so Charles VII of France, finding in Henry an enemy even more gullible than Duke Philip of Burgundy, persuaded him to hand over control of the County of Maine in 1446 for a truce and a vague promise of a permanent peace but Charles never had any intention of a permanent peace until all French lands were restored to him. From 1446 to 1449, the French violations of the truce were daily more blatant, as Charles VII, as he had done in Burgundy, kept trying to push the boundaries of what he could get away with. English ships were attacked, villages raided, and in English-held towns, rebellions encouraged. On the 24th of March, 1449, it was the English who made a breach of the truce. An Aragonese captain seized the town of Forger in the marches of Brittany, close to the Norman border. On first appearance, this was just the independent action of a foreign mercenary. The English denied all knowledge of the attack, but the French suspected that the expedition had been planned in London. And they were right. It was just the excuse Charles VII was waiting for to launch the invasion into Normandy that had been secretly planning. As a result of financial constraints and a lack of political leadership, the English garrisons were too weak to resist, and reinforcements were slow in being dispatched. Local inhabitants offered little support to the English, often betraying their towns to the French, and what remained of the English Kingdom of France collapsed like a house of cards. In October 1450, the French laid siege to Rouen, the capital of Normandy. Here the inhabitants were divided, some sending a deputation to England begging for support, while others insisted that the garrison surrender. Edmund Beaufort was in overall command, and within a week, believing no help would arrive from England in time, decided to surrender. His most belligerent subordinate, the military commander, John Talbot, was one of eight hostages handed over to the French, while Beaufort and the garrison were allowed to leave for the city of Cannes. A little under a fortnight later, the massive castle at Chateau Gaillard, key to navigation along the river Seine between Paris and the coast of Normandy, surrendered to the French. Such was the determination of the French to retake Normandy that hostilities continued throughout the winter, and the English position in Normandy grew ever more desperate. The most important of these winter operations was against the port of Harfleur. 
A siege began on the 8th of December, and under King Charles VII's supervision was pressed hard despite the freezing conditions, until the English garrison surrendered on the 1st of January, 1450. Less than three weeks later, Honfleur, on the other side of the Seine estuary, also fell. The English still held part of western Normandy around the strongly garrisoned cities of Cannes and Bayeux, plus Falaise and part of the Cotentin Peninsula, including Cherbourg. The situation was not beyond hope if a strong counter-attack could be organised, but in the absence of strong leadership from Henry VI, the response was slow and poorly financed. Finally, in March 1540, an English army of around 3,000, led by Sir Thomas Curiel, landed in Cherbourg. Thomas Curiel was a knight of the Garter and a well-respected commander who had fought with distinction in France, often alongside John Talbot. His arrival raised English morale in Normandy, and his order seems to have been to support Bayeux. But as the French now held key castles in the Cotentin Peninsula, he could not set out immediately. Reinforced by some 2,000 men from the English garrisons in Normandy, Kyriel's first target was the fortified town of Valonia, which fell on the 10th of April after a siege of three weeks. In one last desperate throw of the die, the English plan was to assemble troops from as many garrisons as possible in order to form an army large enough to roll back the French gains. While Curio's force was relatively lightly equipped, some of these garrisons had substantial siege engines, including artillery. Two days after taking Valonia, they headed south to Bayeux. To do this, however, they either had to take or somehow bypass the French-held town of Carenton. Curiel decided on the latter course, leading his army across the coastal marshes and estuaries of the Grand Vey, a broad bay comprising a vast area of tidal sands, backed by sand dunes at the mouths of two rivers, the Carenton and the Isigny. Crossing this area would be hazardous, and leave the English army vulnerable to attack. A considerable French army arrived in the area and could have chosen this moment to attack, but its commander, the young Jean de Clermont, son of the Duke of Bourbon, hesitated and missed the opportunity. Despite some harassment from local people, the English crossed without major problems and arrived at the village of Formigny, where they made camp for the night. The next morning, the 15th of April, 1450, Thomas Curiel, on becoming aware that a major French army was approaching, ordered his troops to hurriedly construct field defences. These consisted of large potholes and ditches, which the English excavated in front of their position, also planting sharpened stakes in the ground as a hindrance to cavalry. There was considerable disagreement about the size of the armies of the Battle of Formigny. Traditionally, it is thought that the English outnumbered the French, perhaps 7,000 to 5,000 men, but this is not known for sure. Shortly after midday, the French army under de Clermont arrived but stopped short just before the range of English archers by a small bridge going over a stream called the Val. The two sides then had a standoff for about three hours. 
Finally, de Clermont sent some gunners forward with two light cannons to bombard the English lines. The nature of warfare in Europe was rapidly changing in this period, especially with the ever wider adoption of gunpowder. As well as changing all the old rules of siege warfare, cannons now proved an effective counterweapon to the English archers, who had been so influential earlier in the Hundred Years' War. A contingent of 500 or so English archers, apparently unauthorised, made an attack across the bridge, drove off the gunners and captured the two cannons. A bitter struggle ensued, with the archers being reinforced by men sent by Kyriel. If the English had launched a full-scale attack at this point, the French would have been in serious trouble. Instead, both commanders acted cautiously, and the battle was decided by the arrival of a third party. When the English first became aware that an army of some 1,200 men were fast approaching from the south, they shouted in triumph at the belief that there were reinforcements. In fact, the new arrivals were led by the French commander, Arthur de Richemont, once ally of the English, who had raced to the scene of the battle as soon as he could. The main French army seized the moment and charged forward. They retook the guns, drove the English back and killed some 200 of them. The English now desperately attempted to wheel its left wing round 90 degrees to face the oncoming army of de Richemont, but were unable to pull off the manoeuvre in the face of an attack from two sides. Their formations disintegrated, panic spread and the French took full advantage. Several hours of carnage ensued, during which the local peasantry joined in to slaughter the hated English. One group of 500 or so English archers sought refuge in a garden next to a stream. Throwing down their bows, they pleaded for mercy, but were nevertheless slaughtered. More than 3,700 English perished that day, and among the 1,200 or so prisoners were a number of senior men, including the commander, Thomas Curiel. Charles VII wasted no time to order the next offensive, an attack on the town of Bayeux, which fell on the 16th of May. The last major English stronghold in Normandy, Caen, was next in line. After disaster at Formigny, the English had no army available to relieve the city, and so after three weeks of relentless bombardment, Edmund Beaufort surrendered on the 25th of June. The English garrison of Falaise likewise capitulated, but did manage at least to negotiate the release from captivity of the experienced field commander John Talbot. Finally, in August, the Ford of Cherbourg brought the campaign to a close. Normandy was back under control of the kings of France, and would remain so. With the exception of the town of Calais, the English were now left with just Gascony, in the southwest corner of France. Charles VII of France was already making small gains in this province from 1449, but from autumn of 1450, following his success in Normandy, he was able to commit his full attention and resources to this new campaign. Initially there was strong resistance to the French invasion, Gascony had been under English sovereignty since the 12th century, and most local leaders had no wish to change, 
preferring rule under a distant English king to interference in their affairs by the French. But in the absence of a sizable English army, garrisons quickly began to fall, and on the 30th of June, 1451, the region's capital, Bordeaux, was captured. In the summer of 1452, the English were planning to send an army to Normandy, but instead the expedition was diverted to Gascony. Many of the leading citizens of Bordeaux already deeply resented the French authorities that now ruled their city, undermining their traditional autonomy and demanding higher taxes. A plot was therefore hatched to bring back their previous orders. John Talbot, by now in his late sixties, was tasked with the recapture of the province. In a long and distinguished military career, he had already gained much respect from all sides, and there was real hope that at least Gascony could be salvaged from the wreckage of what had been the English Kingdom of France. The English government continued to have great trouble funding their military campaigns and had to resort to enforced loans, which were fiercely resisted. Therefore, although they had wanted to raise an army of 5,000 men, only 3,000 appeared to have set out with Talbot in September 1452. Favourable winds, however, enabled the fleet to quickly reach its destination, and Talbot landed in Gascony on the 17th of October 1452. According to tradition, the people of this area rose in support of Talbot. Several skirmishes were fought and some castles taken. Even before he reached Bordeaux, several Gascon lords offered him their support. The leader of the French garrison of Bordeaux was determined to fight, but instead was seized in his bed by locals in what appeared to be a carefully coordinated coup and the city gates were opened to the English on the 23rd of October. By the end of the year, most places had been retaken, with the exception of the great castle of Fronsac, which fell after a brief siege in early 1453. Charles VII is said to have received news of the events in Gascony on All Saints' Day at the start of November 1452. He reacted furiously and at first promised to punish the people severely. He ordered reinforcements to those places the French still held and ordered that any suburbs that made them vulnerable should be burned to the ground. On the diplomatic front, he agreed a military alliance with Count Gaston IV of Foire, whose territory in the Pyrenees bordered Gascony to the southeast. This led to a useful numerical advantage over the Anglo-Gascon forces in and around Bordeaux. By late spring of 1453, a considerable force of French troops were on their way to Bordeaux, led by the same Jean de Clermont, who had led his troops to victory at Formigny. With little apparent difficulty, they quickly retook several small towns and castles. Having established contact with the forces of Torbert, de Clermont offered a formal challenge to battle. The armies of de Clermont and Foire were already close to each other, and so agreed to join up. When Torbert learned that his opponents had united, he hesitated, and demanded further conditions before agreeing to meet. This turned out to be a delaying tactic. Torbert, not wanting to take head-on a numerically larger army, decided to retreat to Bordeaux. 
the French army advanced and continued to make further gains. On the 13th of July, 1453, they arrived at the castle of Castillon, on the banks of the river Dordogne. The nearby town, known today as Castillon-la-Bataille, lies 50 kilometres, or 30 miles, east of Bordeaux. According to David Nicole in his book, The Fall of English France, 1449 to 1453, although the French army were not large, they were well equipped. The individual put in charge of the siege was Jean Bureau, son of merchants from Paris. He is described as a man of small stature, but of purpose and daring, particularly skilled and experienced in the use of artillery. As for the number of French troops, estimates vary a great deal, but included 6,000 to 10,000 men-at-arms, archers and others, plus 700 dedicated to the construction of fieldworks, under the command of John Bureau. Talbot set out to relieve the garrison at Castillon, leaving Bordeaux in the early hours of the 16th of July. His army comprised some 800 to 1,000 men-at-arms and mounted archers, plus perhaps some 2,000 Gascon troops under their local lords, and 4,000 to 6,000 English infantry. They stopped briefly at the strongly fortified town of Libon, but Torbert only allowed his men a very brief rest before resuming their march, reportedly setting out again at midnight. Winding their way through the hills north of the Dordogne, they assembled in the woods above the priory of saint Florent, just outside Castillon, without the French becoming aware of their presence. Torbert seemed confident, as were his men, who marched under the banner of a soldier who inspired terror in his foes. Shortly after the sun rose, the Anglo-Gascons emerged from the forest and captured the priory, taking the French defenders by surprise. There they found plentiful stores of food and drink with which to refresh themselves. The question now was whether Torbert would immediately follow up his advantage or let the tired troops rest. At this point messengers arrived from Castillon declaring that there was a cloud of dust over the French camp caused by the French hurriedly retreating. In response, Torbert gave orders for an immediate attack. In fact, the dust had been completely misinterpreted. It was not caused by the French retreating, but their preparing for battle. Torbert urged his men to hurry, leading his mounted troops along the bank of the Dordogne, but leaving his infantry to follow as best they could. David Nicole dismisses the idea that this was a disorganised rush but rather that the Anglo-Gascons were in proper array, with a vanguard under Torbert, followed by other mounted troops to protect the slower-moving infantry. On arriving at the French position, Torbert was taken aback to find the French standing firm and well prepared. According to a French chronicler, Thomas Bazin, Torbert's second-in-command, Thomas Everingham, at this point advised, waiting for the infantry to catch up before attacking. Believing that with patience the French could be starved into submission, as the local people, who were pro-English, would not supply them with food. Torbert's decision to dismiss this advice has been ever since criticised as impetuous for putting his pride before good judgement. Nicole argues instead that there must have been good reason for the decision. 
Perhaps he wanted to keep up the momentum of his initiative. Also, the French placing their cumbersome guns in new positions to face an attack from an unexpected direction. The resulting Battle of Castillon on the 17th of July, 1453, was one of the first in history where a new technology, the cannon, would play an important role. The 300 French guns of various sizes were used to great effect against the Anglo-Gascons as they advanced. Talbot's reinforcements appeared piecemeal and were ordered to attack the right flank of the French position. When informed that only the leading elements of his force had arrived, Talbot told them to attack as and when they arrived. Although the French were protected behind field fortifications, they quickly began to tire and the arrival of the Anglo-Gascon infantry seems to have revived the spirits of Talbot's own men. A fierce battle raged for over an hour, until, as in Formigny, it was a Breton cavalry charge that turned the tide. The sources are not clear on why it took so long for the Bretons to attack. Were they perhaps deliberately held back for maximum impact? In any case, Talbot was caught by surprise, probably because of the amount of smoke and noise caused by the primitive guns. The French, seeing their enemy falter and encouraged by the Breton assault, launched a ferocious counter-attack. The Anglo-Gascons panicked and started to try and flee. John Talbot tried to rally his troops, but his horse fell and he became trapped underneath. There were various accounts of his death, but the most accepted is that he was struck on the head with an axe by a French soldier. The morale of the Anglo-Gascons collapsed entirely, and hundreds, probably thousands, were cut down as they tried to flee. Within a few months of this decisive battle, all towns and castles in Gascony fell to the army of Charles VII. Many French leaders wanted Bordeaux to suffer for inviting the English back. But Charles disagreed and decided that mercy would be a more effective way of integrating the long-separated areas into a unified French kingdom. With hindsight, we can see that the Battle of Castillon marks a watershed moment in the history of Europe. Although no one knew it at the time, the English would not launch another major assault on France until 1475, and never again successfully conquer French territory. The most enduring legacy of the Hundred Years' War was centuries after of rivalry and hatred between the English and the French peoples. The French never forgot the devastation of their farms and countryside, not to mention the loss of life, of a conflict which must have seemed at times never-ending. As for the English, they had spent a fortune on the conflict over the years and lost many lives themselves, and all ultimately for nothing. In later centuries, in some ways, they were better off without the burden of French lands to fight for and without the entanglement in continental politics and warfare that that involved. For France, their king... Charles VII had achieved the defeat of the English, not by a great battle, he was not that type of leader, but through years of careful diplomacy. The key to success in the Middle Ages was as much about persuading others to follow you as it was military prowess, although the two were often linked. If Charles had acted too slowly and timidly, it didn't matter in the end. 
His final victory came thanks to sheer persistence and perhaps some good luck. His successors would build on that victory, gain mastery over the whole of France and become the most powerful rulers of Europe. Thank you for listening to A History of Europe, Key Battles, and until next week, goodbye. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.